All right. Well, if I missed you earlier, my name's Jordan, and we are, uh, I'm the pastor, and we are in the book of Esther for the summer, and it has been a uh, fun and kind of dramatic story. If you haven't read it before, it's a unique book, and um, today we are in chapter four, and really, I think for, for the characters in the story, if you've been following along with us, and um, you know that kind of a lot of what they're experiencing for all, for many people has been painted as sort of this uh, you know I'm a they're, they're a victim to this uh, king and and his decree and they're going to be slaughtered and all of these things I've really tried to help us look at the bigger picture and the context and help us see how in a lot of ways um, where they are and what they're experiencing. They should have never been there to experience experience these things in the first place. And so much of what is going on in this story is very much a result of (coughs) God's people disobeying and and not following God in the first place. And so we've kind of helped to look at that Esther and Mordecai have not been these heroes that we are to to mimic and uh, sort of moralize and think, okay, how great they are. And Mordecai stands up to Haman and all of these things. And um, rather... In fact, they are part of the rebellious people of God who did not go back to Jerusalem after they were allowed to and are chasing their own life of prosperity in the capital city of the Persian Empire. And they kind of picked the wrong fights and you know, assimilate into the culture, and some of these things are brought on as a result of that. And so today, I think we're at that point in the story, and maybe you've had points, of this, points like this in your life, maybe when you were younger, whenever you, you realized that you actually should have listened to mom and dad in the first place. Right? You had any moments like that? You should have listened, and now you've got yourself in really, really deep. Anybody ever been there? Got yourself in really, really deep, and now the only way out is you got to ask them for help. Right? That's an awkward moment. And before you get to that moment, you've thought of every other option, right? Well, could I do this, and can I get out? Could 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 I try this? And maybe if I do this, or I spin the story this way, then they won't really have to know, but eventually it comes crashing down, and you have to realize and own up to the fact that I've made a mess, and I'm going to have to ask them for help. I'm going to have to admit that they were right. I've made a mess in my life, and now I need their help. Well, that's really the moment that we find the characters of Mordecai and Esther and really the Jewish people um, in general living in the Persian Empire. That's where we find them today. So we see that right from the beginning in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. If you... Uh, didn't turn there, or you already closed your Bible, I'll invite you to t- open it back up. We're going to look at this together. Um, and so we see that right at the beginning, um, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter voice. What's going on there? Well, this is the moment whenever he's realized, okay, this has gotten out of my hands. I can no longer, like, I didn't realize what I was doing was leading to this, and now the consequences are coming to bear. But for those of you who weren't here, or maybe just as a refresher for all of us, we got to kind of look, because the Bible even says, all that had been done. So we got to kind of recap just briefly uh, all that had been done and what he's talking about in those moments. And so what we have here is in the historical um, Persian Empire where King Xerxes, his, his name's going to be Ahasuerus in this book. That's his, um, <clears throat> that's his, Persian, or his Persian name. His Greek name is Xerxes. We're more familiar with that. And and yes, that's the story of 300 whenever he tries to go and conquer the Greeks and, and he, gets, uh, he gets his butt whooped. And, and so what has happened in this story is he's ruling most of the known world. He's on a complete power trip. He's a spoiled um, guy who really hasn't accomplished much, was handed you know, the kingdom and never wanted for anything. He's a spoiled um, 
ridiculously powerful, ridiculously rich man who thinks that he is God. He thinks that he's a God man. He thinks that the Son speaks through him. He sits on a throne high above all of his people, and he rules with such authority that everyone fears him, and yet he is actually a cowardice little boy on the inside. But what we see is he, he throws a fit, or he's throwing this huge party. He calls his wife Vashti in to, to, to come and parade before all the people to be impressive, and, and she says no. Well, he doesn't like that very much. He's embarrassed in front of all of his friends. He takes her crown away, and after some time and realizing he actually does want a queen, he decides to throw this huge uh, beauty pageant of sorts, or actually that's not a great way to put it. I think it's actually more accurately, and I've been joking about this, but I think it's actually more accurately described as a bachelor like show, right? The Bachelor Persia, where all these women are brought to him, except they don't come voluntarily. They're brought to him, and all the, the attractive virgins of the, of the Persian Empire are brought to him to compete in this competition, to have one night with the king, and one night with the king entails probably what you think it might entail. And whoever he likes the best, he will pick that woman to be the new queen. Well, we have, that's going on in the story, and then we zoom in and we have these characters, Mordecai and Esther, who are Jews, and they're there in the capital city, and, they're, and, and they get tangled up in this story. Well, they're not supposed to be there, and we'll look at that later, but they are, and so Esther actually is one of the young, beautiful women who gets brought into this you know, beauty pageant of sorts, and she actually wins the thing, becomes queen, and now she's on the throne. She's been there for about uh, five years or so, and then Mordecai, her adopted father, who was actually her cousin, and uh, again, I can't recap all of that. It would really be nice to have one of those, like, you know, previously on Esther, and where you could just kind of get the recap real quick, but I don't have that, so you just have to read it or listen to the sermons if you want to catch up. But Mordecai is her adopted father. He's actually her cousin. Her parents died. He raised her as his own, which is a commendable thing, but he doesn't speak up whenever she's taken into this, you know, ridiculous situation, which, again, I've always encouraged dads like we should. If you have somebody comes and says, I'm going to take your daughter so that she can go lose her virginity to this perverted king, you need to put your foot down and say, no thanks, you're going to have to go over my dead body. And he doesn't do that. He lets her go, but he's really worried about her. He's really concerned. But she wins the pageant. And well, he doesn't stand up there, but he does stand up later when this guy who kind of has a family rivalry with his own family and with the Jews, he, he does pick that fight. And he says, and this guy gets promoted and everybody's supposed to bow down to him. Mordecai says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to bow down. And so he picks this fight, and this guy, who is the number two in the Persian Empire, goes, all right, well, I'm going to not just kill you, I'm going to kill all your people. I'm going to kill all your people. And this decree has now been sent out, where Xerxes gives this joker the authority, this Haman, that's kind of the evil character in the story, gives him the authority and says, okay, uh, you, you, can, you can do this, and we're going to kill all the Jews, we'll plunder all their goods, we'll take half of it and put it back in the king's um, you know, coffers, and then the, the rest will give to the mercenaries who did all this work. And, and so there's this genocide. There's this decree of genocide where all of the Jewish people are going to be taken out. And this is what has been done. This is what Mordecai is mourning as, as this reality check of not only has, he, uh, has his luck run out as far as pursuing this prosperous life in the city of Susa, not only is that going on, but it's, it's come to this place where it's not just about him and the battle that he picked between Haman. It is now he's got himself in a place where all of his people, all of God's people are going to pay for his choices, and they're going to die. So what happened is a, a date was selected on the calendar a few months from now, which is a weird tension, right? Where, and they say, okay, on this date, all of the Jews are to be extinguished, all of them. Men, women, children, all of them. 
So the city is thrown into confusion as it's the first one to get it, the capital city. And then as it goes out into the other provinces, more and more hear it. And that news is perpetuated throughout the whole Persian Empire that on this date, the Jews will be executed. That's what Mordecai is mourning. That's, what he's, that's what's going on in this moment. So I want to run through this story just for context so you can see what happens. And then we're going to rewind at the end and kind of lay it back over our life so we can see ourselves in the story. So let's run through and just see how it plays out and get some understanding of what's actually happening. And then we'll, we'll look back and kind of apply it to our own day. So Mordecai hears all this, or he knows what's happened. Now he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now we don't relate to that, but this is a, 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 you know ancient Eastern way of, of showing that you're in mourning, that you are in repentance, that you are uh, weeping. Like, and so he, he does this, and not just at his own house. He goes into the city center. So that, you know they don't have Twitter right, and Instagram, so everybody can't know what you're feeling and thinking in a moment in this day. So he's got to go to the city center and put on this display, kind of throw his fit, make sure that everybody knows that he is upset. But he really legitimately is upset. So... <clears throat> And, and I'll, I'll say this, this is a turning point in the story. We've been talking about how Mordecai and Esther are not godly people up to this point, at least from the evidence we've been given. We're not seeing them keep God's fast. We're not seeing them pray. We're not seeing them follow and stand up for the things that God is actually about. Instead, it seems as though they're completely assimilated into the Persian culture. And we've talked about that. These are not heroes to be modeled. But we, this is a turning point in the story where, where God is going to use the crisis of this moment to sober up these characters, and many of his people in the Persian Empire. And so this is a turning point. We're going to watch in real time Esther and Mordecai being snapped out of their you know, pursuit of a, of a comfortable and prosperous life and back into the reality of, oh yeah, God did have a plan for us. He has commanded us to live a certain way, and we've neglected that. And now this is what's happened as a result. So in real time, we're going to see them move into repentance. And the rest of the story, we're going to see them live with a purpose and follow God, at least to a greater degree. They're going to make some progress, and we'll get into that in the coming weeks. But this is a turning point, chapter 4, where we're going to see them shift and move into repentance. So this is Mordecai. This is his first act of that. He's, he's, he's displaying that, he, oh, man, he's broken. He's sorry. He is in repentance, and he is weeping for all of his people, not only his own life, but all of his people. So he went to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now, what's up with that? Well, if you're clothed in sackcloth, there's been some bad news in your life, right? Something has happened, a diagnosis has happened, uh, a fear, you're in repentance, and, and the king doesn't want that kind of vibe in his life, right? He wants you to bring him good news, not heavy, weighty stuff. So you can't have that mess around the king. So you're not allowed. If you're in sackcloth, not only are you not looking presentable, right? We don't want that garb. Like, put on a suit if you're going to come to the king. But, but also, like, we don't want that posture, that, that weepy, needy person. No. Like, we don't want that kind of news brought to the king. And so the king's not allowed to listen. Some of y'all are like that. Some of y'all are like, don't tell me the hard things. Some of y'all treat church like this. And I know it because it kind of trickles back around to me. And when, we, when, we, when, when God lays it on my heart, or when, when I just open up the word of God and, and the word of God lays it on us that, that he has indeed commanded us to live a certain way. And when he's commanded us to care that there are people suffering around us right under our nose in Southern Illinois and in and, and foster care and in need of a home and in need of somebody to walk with them through their drug addiction and in need of somebody to help them live their life and, and care for their kids. Whenever we lay things like that upon 
and before us and the orphan crisis throughout the world. And then when we, we, we lay things like the, the fact that there are millions of people groups who still have not heard the name of Jesus and are dying and going to hell. And he's given that as like he's given that to us as our responsibility. When we when we begin to push on that, I, I begin to get some feedback and say, listen, that's enough, right? Like you can say it once and maybe move on and you know, I, maybe I'll give a little bit more or whatever, but don't keep harping on that, right? Like, let's move on to something else. And I begin to hear some feedback like that. So a lot of us are, and I get it. I'm like that too. I don't like to watch the news. I don't like to feel the weight of the brokenness of the world. Like, we have this posture of just tell me what I, what I want to hear. Tell me what, what makes me feel better, what, what kind of makes me feel okay about continuing to live my life in my comfort zone. We don't always want to experience the truth and reality of what's going on. In our world, and that's, that's very much the king. Don't, don't come to him in sackcloth. Come to him with good news only. Verse 3, but in every province, wherever the king's command, so you think about this, he sends people out. I told you earlier, they actually invented what is like the modern-day postal system, and our UPS, uh, USPS, whatever, their motto is kind of adapted from the, per- like, so they make this decree, they make it in every language throughout the whole Persian Empire, the 127 provinces, and it is going to go out so that everybody knows any Jews around you, they're going to be slaughtered. On this date. So it begins to trickle out from the capital city and then it gets advanced into the kingdom. And so as it goes into province after province, verse 3, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So they follow, as they get this news, they follow in Mordecai's footsteps and put on their own sackcloth and ashes. But there's a different. So that's one part of the story. But then we remember, oh, yeah, one of God's people, who she's kept her identity hidden, right? Esther is not in the province. She's not in amongst the common people of the world. She's in the castle. She's in the queen's room because she's the queen. So she's kind of isolated from this, right? She's in the place where that, that bad news doesn't get brought in. She, she's not yet heard about this because it wasn't a big deal to the king. We saw at the end of the last chapter, after this decree goes out, the whole city's in chaos. The king and Haman, they sit down for a drink. Right? Not a big deal to them. Just another day at the office. Right? They're going to make some money, get rid of some people. Not a big deal. So Esther has not yet heard this. And so in verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came, so she's got a whole posse to care for her, and they told her what was going on, the queen was deeply distressed. So she sent garments. So not only do they tell her what has happened as far as the decree, but they also tell her, hey, Mordecai, your dad, your your adopted father, he's out there looking a fool. He's in sackcloth and ashes, and everybody's like he's made a spectacle. Um, And so she says, okay, take him some clothes, (laughs) right? Like he can't come talk to me if he doesn't put on some clothes, but he won't do it, right? So she sends garments to Mordecai, verse 4. So he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. He, He said, no, I'm not doing it. So then Esther called for one of her main men, right? Hathak, and one of the kings, who was one of the king's eunuchs, and he says, hey, she says, go talk to Mordecai. Learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak goes out to Mordecai, verse 6, in the square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasurers or treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree. So he says, here, this is what everybody's getting throughout the provinces and all the Persian Empire. Take this back into Esther, right, so that she might see it and, and you can explain to her and command her, right? So this is interesting. Up to this point, Mordecai, as she's gone into the beauty pageant, he said, hey, don't tell anybody you're a Jew, right? Keep that Keep that a secret. 
don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Don't tell anybody you're a Jew. So, so, and she obeys him. Like, she obeys him like a father. She's, she's very compliant to what Mordecai says. And now, in this moment, he says, here, take her this thing. Take her this decree that everybody else is getting and command her. Tell her, I said to, that she has to go to the king to beg his favor, the end of verse 8, and plead with him on behalf of her people. So now he's going to get authoritative, right? Now he's going to say, here's what you need to do, Esther. Here, you need to stand up. Like, now, like, the, the clock is ticking, and if you don't do something, we're all going to die. So Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And so Esther, so he relays this message. So there's this, this game of, you know, delivering the messages, going back and forth. Mordecai won't put on clothes and come in. So this guy's sent out. Here's what Esther says. Well, Mordecai says, well, tell her what I said. And he's going back and taking this message. And then Esther uh, spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, listen, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is what, what one law. That's what she's saying is, hey, I don't know if you forgot Mordecai, but you can't just tell me to go into the king and, you know, plead our case. Everybody knows the one thing about the king is you stroll up into his presence without being called. And there's one thing that we know what's going to happen. There's a dude standing there ready to lop your head off. Like, that's, it's just a done deal. The king doesn't get bothered by somebody that he doesn't want to be bothered by. The king doesn't get just random strangers, you know, being brought in. He doesn't get telemarketers. He doesn't get people just strolling. Like, no, like, you stroll up into his space. He didn't ask you to be there, and you're going to be executed immediately. So she goes, hey, I don't know if you forgot that. It's not as simple as me just, you know, going and, you know, saying, hey, king. And even though she's the queen, she still has to be called. She still has to be called. And so she, she reminds him this. There's one law to be put to death, except to the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. So there's an exception. If you come into the presence of the king, he's seated way up on his throne, right? He's way better. He's, he's, he's more powerful than any uh, being on this world. You, you come in. He didn't ask you. He doesn't want you there. You're gone. You come in, and he goes, you know what? I'll hang with, I'll hang with Chile today, right? He extends his golden scepter. Chili can live. If he doesn't, the guys know what to do. So if he extends his golden scepter, then, then they may live. And so she says, hey, I don't know if you forgot, that that's the reality that you're sending me into. And she goes, hey, I have not been, the end of verse 11, as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. So we see that um, when, the, when the beauty pageant's going on, these, these girls go in, they have a night with the king, and, and, and if he likes them, but, you know, they're not the queen, then they're just going to go into the harem, go to the other side of the building, and that's where they're going to live. Now, if he ever thinks to them, oh, yeah, I really like so-and-so, then he can call them by name, and they might get to come back and spend another night with the king. How nice, right? How romantic. But if not, they just get to live their life over there, and that's true of the queen. If he doesn't request her presence, she doesn't get to go. So when Esther first shows up on the scene, he's infatuated with her. He's crazy about her. He makes her the queen. He gives a tax break. He throws a party. He likes him some Esther. Right, But it's been a few years now, and it seems like maybe he's getting over Esther, not as infatuated with her anymore, because he hasn't called on her in 30 days. So she goes, hey, we, we're not, I, we don't have that kind of relationship right now. I, he's, I don't know what he's doing, but he hasn't asked for me, so if I just show up, like, it's likely I'm on that list. So, guy, you can imagine this joker, Hathic, right? He's just like, all right, whatever. So now he's got to go back and tell them, like, go back and tell Mordecai what she said. I get I feel like he'd be just like, dude, put your clothes on. Come talk to her yourself. But he won't do it. So he's taking these messages back and forth. So verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. 
Here's what he says. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any other Jew. So the king doesn't know she's a Jew yet. They didn't know she was a Jew earlier, but now that all this has come about, Mordecai has let it out. He, is let, he has told people the reason he wasn't bowing was that he was a Jew. Well, everybody knows that Mordecai is her adopted father, right? Like he's part of the family. So, okay, now Mordecai's a Jew. It's not going to take long until some genius is going to put it together. Oh, well, that means the queen's a Jew, right? So Mordecai's saying, hey, you can't just be silent on this and expect that you yourself are safe from this. So, yeah, you may die if you go before the, the king, but the reality is the king's decree has been made. It cannot be revoked, and you're on that list. So you're going to die either way. So he brings, he brings her kind of back to reality and says, listen, either way, you're going to die. Verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise, from the, uh, rise for the Jews from another place. But as for you and your father's house, we'll perish. So what, what it seems like... Mordecai is saying in this moment is he's been he's sort of been reminded of who God is and what God does and what God does is he keeps his promises and God has said he's going to uh, keep these people he's going to make a great nation out of these people and that he will not go back on his covenant even though they mess it up even though they were sold into uh, you know captivity because of their own sins God will be faithful so Mordecai's going okay I know God's not going to let this whole thing go off the rails because he he saved us before. He'll do his thing, right? So he'll preserve a remnant. Somehow he's going to finish out his story and make sure like, that his purposes get done. But he's saying, listen. So he's saying, help's going to come from the Jews from somewhere. Somehow God will handle his own business. But for you, we've got no guarantee of that, Esther. And it's likely that because of your silence, because of, the way, because of our own sin, because we've kept this quiet, that you and your father's house, me, you, like the ones that are left, we're going to perish. Like this is going to be the end of us. Middle of verse 14 now, and this is the most famous verse, famous passage in the book of Esther. Mordecai says this, and who knows, who knows, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he says, listen, Mordecai, or Esther, this is not going to end well. I know you might get executed if you go before the king but either way you're getting executed and who knows maybe that's why you're the queen in the first place none of this should be we shouldn't be here we should be back in Jerusalem but maybe this is what God's doing maybe this is why you're on the throne so he reminds her hey maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this then 15 then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai she takes it in and we could see in this moment is when she begins to say okay all right I'm in I know what I have to do. I know what mess we've caused, and I'm in. So she says, go and gather all the Jews that can be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. She says, okay, I'm going to do this, but I can't just do this on my own. I'm going to need help. I'm going to need all the favor from God that I can get. So go and gather all the people of God that you can find and make sure they fast. If they want to live, they need to fast. For 30 days and 30 nights, we're not eating. Me and my young women, all the people in my pocket, Esther says, we'll do it too. And then... I'll go into the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She says, okay, we're going to do this. Everybody fast for 30 days. We'll fast for 30 days inside the cot. And then at the end of that, I'll go in. It's against the law. I know what could happen. But if I perish, I perish. So we see the, the turning point for Esther where she begins to, to follow now and give her life over, it seems, 
And, and again, may, we don't know. Maybe this is all just the consequence. Like, maybe she ain't really sorry. Maybe Mordecai ain't really sorry. They're just sorry they got caught, right? Like, it, it totally could be what's happening in this moment. But God is using this crisis to sober his people back up. And we don't know at what point they, they truly, uh, you know, give their life back up. We don't know. But in this moment, at least her actions are beginning to fall back in line with the way that God has called his people to live and trusting in him and him alone. And so she says, listen, I'll do it. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai then went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. So that's the story. And it's a weird story, isn't it? And it seems so distant and, you know, like it's, it's a, these ancient people and, and they have kings and they are in sackcloth and ashes and we, 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 we struggle to relate. As I've said, people didn't preach this book of the Bible for centuries. They're like, I, nobody knows what to do with that. God's name's not mentioned. It's pretty confusing. We don't know what Mordecai and Esther, we don't know if we can make them heroes or not. It doesn't seem like it may be here, but not there. I don't know. And so people just kind of kept it away. I think, I think the opportunity before us, again, the lack of God's name being mentioned is actually an invitation by the author to, to lean in and see his, his work, to see what he's doing, to see how the responsibility of people lead to this, and yet God is not pulling away and, and backing out on them. Instead, he's leaning in and controlling things and, and taking the story the way that he needs to take it so that his will gets accomplished. And, and so I think what's, what's before us today is not to just go, okay, well, you know, in, in this moment, in such a time as this, maybe I, my life needs to be used in this way. I think we need to see ourselves in the story. We need to see ourselves not just in Mordecai and Esther's shoes, but in the people that are the Jewish people of God that are in the Persian Empire instead of having gone back to where God's people are commanded to be. I think we need to see ourselves there. And we've talked a lot about cultural Christianity the last couple of weeks and how uh, for so many people, this is a Christian, you know, has been a Christian country growing up and especially in this area. And we, this, is, this is like, we, we know that we're supposed to go to church. We know these are good Christian morals and this aligns with this, you know, part of politics and this aligns with that. And we, we, this is our people. Like, this is how we live and this is Christianity. And like, and maybe we don't really care about following the things of, of Jesus, right? But when somebody threatens to take our guns away or, or the, or the, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments out of, out of our schools, then we rise up all of a sudden and we're really proud to be a Christian and you're not going to take my rights away, right? And so we have some of that. It's just misplaced, um, you know, enthusiasm about the wrong things. And, and, and hear me, I'm not saying that we should not be concerned about those things that are going on in the political world. I'm just saying we don't make those the primary places that we stand up. We don't just give passes on all the other things about God's law, and then go, oh, but this one I'm going to stand up for, right? When we're not concerned about the Ten Commandments and how we're actually living and the people around us are actually living, but when we want the tradition kept, that's whenever we've got things kind of confused. And I think that's what you've seen in this story where Mordecai and Esther and the Jews, it's not that they necessarily abandoned their faith. It's not that they, they, they were saying, well, we're not people of God anymore. I mean, they were kind of hiding it. But I think, you know, they're, they're still Jewish by ethnicity, by, you know, heritage, by, you know, this is who they are as people, but they're not living for God. They're, they're not actually worshiping God. They're not actually letting their faith inform how they live their life. And that creates this disconnect that creates this people that God never intended for his people to be like. And I think we need to see our own selves in that. So I want to zoom back in. And, and, and like I said, this moment for them is whenever they've realized, okay, my chickens are coming home to roost, right? Like where we've placed our life, like the way that we've walked before the Lord, it's, it's now, it's, its consequences are catching up to us. And I've got to 
asked dad for help. I got to admit that he was right in the first place and I got to ask him for help. Like, so that's their moment. But I want to zoom back in on what that actually looked like for them. Because it seems like they're just a totally different people, again, with their sackcloth and their kings. But I think in reality, they're just like us. They're a whole lot like us whenever it comes to how they live their life. I want you to think about what was put before them. I've said, well, they shouldn't have been there. They should have gone back to Jerusalem. I want you to think about that moment, though. So if you're not familiar with the story, God's people, he, he gives them this kingdom, uh, the promised land. He makes this kingdom called Israel, and the, the capital of that is Jerusalem, and that's where his temple is. That's where his presence is. That's where his people come to worship, and they will be his people, and he will be their God, and he will bless them, and they will be a light into the whole world because the whole world will look and go, man, things are going really well in Israel. Why is that? It's because they worship Jehovah. People will be going, oh, man, Jehovah is Jehovah's the one true God. He's taking care of his people. He's fighting for his people. He's providing for his people. But God says, I'll, be, I'll do all this, but you have to obey my commands. And if you don't, then I'm going to punish you. And I'm going to let the kingdoms of the world come and take you over and take you into captivity. And you're going to lose that connection with me. I won't forget you. I'll, I'll hang up. But the, so this is what happens. And so that happens. They get taken into captivity by Babylon. That lasts for several years, a generation or so. And then uh, Babylon gets overtaken by Persia. And that king is King Cyrus. And he's like, you know what? I'm your emperor, but you don't have to stay here. You can go back to your own provinces. You can go back to where you're from and rebuild the city. In fact, God gives him, like Cyrus in particular, in uh, Isaiah, you see this, this, like God chooses this pagan king and says, I'm going to use you to rebuild my city. And so he sets the Jews free. You don't have to stay in Babylon anymore. You can go back to your city of God. And again, I've, I try to make this clear. Like, this isn't just like, well, we'll go. Like, that'll be a nice place to, 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 you know, visit if we can. Like, that is where God's presence dwelt, and that is the only place that God's presence dwelt. Okay, in the Old Testament, it wasn't like this. Well, he just, you know, he lived within all of you know, all of our hearts like we do today. Like, we're not worried about geographic location. We don't have to travel to Mecca to worship our God. Like, we have this understanding of the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Well, that's not happened at this point. Jesus hasn't made atonement for our sins. The Holy Spirit isn't dwelling inside these people. He's dwelling inside the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple. People of God are supposed to be with God. And instead, so some go back. We see in Ezra and Nehemiah, like, lots of people go back, but a whole lot. In fact, more people, they stay and the people in, in this story, instead of, we got a map, I think, and we could see, instead of heading back to Jerusalem from Babylon, should be that way, they actually head the other direction to Susa. And again, we could sit back and judge them and go, well, you know, how could you do that? You know, God's temple, like, his temple's been destroyed, his city's been destroyed, it's all in ruins. And God's told them really clearly in Isaiah, you're going to be, you're going to go back, and you're going to Make this, you're going to clean this mess up, right? You're going to, out of the ashes, out of the ruins, I'm going to rebuild my kingdom. But some of these people, they just go, eh, I'm good, I'm going to go this way. And it's easy for us to judge them, but I think if we kind of zoom in and go, okay, what, what was before them in these moments? What was, what was the choice that was actually there? And if you think about it, what, they say, okay, you're free to go back where God has you. But li- listen, what, the, what they know about Jerusalem is that it's in ruins. Its walls are torn down. The temple has been destroyed. So if I go back there, that's going to be a, that, that's, hard, that's a hard life. We're going to be working all day. Like, we don't have protection. We don't have houses to live in. Like, we're going to we're gonna have to start from scratch. There's a lot of sacrifice involved in that. So that's kind of what they, that's what they're faced with. And so then they go, well, we could do that. Or, we could go, like I hear Susa is a, an amazing city, 
right? Much in the same way that, you know, settlers in the early America, like they hear about the, the gold in the West and go like, well, we could stay here and it keep being hard, but like, well, we could go out there and make it big. Like it could be really, really good for us, right? So they're kind of drawn to go, well, this city's prospering. There's a lot of opportunity. The job market is, is incredible in Susa. So let's, let's go there. And so they do. And they're not saying, well, we're, we're just going to become pagan. We don't care about God at all anymore, right? We're not going to do it. Like, well, not, not really. Like, they're keeping their identity. Like, they're still saying, well, we're Jew. You know, like, they're not becoming just this crazy, you know, drug-addicted, rebellious people. They're going, well, we're still going to be good people, but we're just going to go over here. Like, I know God calls some people to, to go do that hard work, right? That's kind of for the varsity people. Right? Like, yeah, I know some people are going to go and, you know, be laying brick and building the temple and all that stuff, but that's just not me. Like, I'm more of a, you know, an indoorsy kind of guy, and I'm not going to be of much use out there, so I'll just go out here. Maybe I'll send you all some money every now and then. Right? And, and so they just make this decision. And it's not, it's not this huge, they're not thinking that they're in this huge state of rebellion, but they do it. Listen, how true is that of so many American Christians? When we see what Jesus has called us to, very clearly, very clearly. You read the Gospels. We spent like a whole year in Luke last year. You read the Gospel of Luke. You read the other, the, and really the whole book. And what you see is God saying, listen, this world, it's broken. It's broken. It's a mess. Sin has made a mess of this thing. But I'm going to make it new. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to start bringing the kingdom to bear on this world. And one day I'll finish that work. But I'm going to use you to, to begin it and to, to bring my kingdom into this broken world. And he says, listen, my kingdom's going to go the, to the marginalized, to the people that are hurting, to the people who don't have fathers and mothers to care for them, the people that don't have homes and their countries are not safe. My kingdom's going to start with them. The people who are sick and addicted, my kingdom's going to start with them. And my people need to be a place where the people that are vulnerable, the people that are suffering, the people that don't have a place of their own can come and find refuge. I'm going to build this people, this kingdom, to be a kingdom of priests, A a light, a city set on a hill so that everybody can know this is where you come for hope and healing. So God lays it before his people. Jesus is really, really clear about this. He's saying, listen, James says it, true religion was what? Caring for widows and orphans. Over and over again, we see the immigrant, the widow, the orphan in the Old Testament. Over and over again, we see Jesus making space for those people at his table in the Gospels. Over and over again, we see uh, him pushing his people to lay down their religious, this is just what we do for life, and start living a life that follows the way that Jesus lived and, and loving on and making space for and giving our lives over to those people. But listen, that's hard, isn't it? It's hard. To, to be called to open up your home to a kid who doesn't have one, to be called to walk with somebody who's in addiction, who has a totally different lifestyle, and they might steal from you, they might hurt. Like, we don't know. Like, to be called to do that, to be called to open up our home to somebody who maybe doesn't even speak our language but needs a place to go, and we don't understand their religion, we don't understand their background, but God has laid all of this before us, and he says th- to, to go live our life amongst a people group who's never heard the name of Jesus so that the name of Jesus can be known and they can be worshiping at the throne, like Revelation 7 says they will be one day to be a part of that. All of that is hard, isn't it? hard especially when we're looking at our life and going yeah but i really like my house and my job like my car like this is really comfortable 
So for us, it's not about geographic, like, well, I'm going to go here instead of going there. For us, it's about, hey, Jesus has called us to live this way and to love this way and to give our lives up this way. And instead, we go, ah, I know you'll call some people to that. Right? I, know, I know the varsity Christians are going to do that. They're going to go be missionaries, and they're going to adopt kids, and they're going to walk with drug addicts, and they're going to, you know, they're going to be, they're going to community group like every week. And, and like, you know, they're going to take a meal to their neighbors. They're actually going to say hi to their neighbors. They're going to know, like, I know God's going to call some people to that, and that's great. I'll give them some money so they can do their thing. But for me, like, it's not really my deal, right? And we kind of over-romanticize this idea of like, well, I'm really not called to that. You heard that before? Like, we're really not called to to, to, you know, to evangelize. I'm really not called to be a missionary. I'm really not called to adopt or, or foster or walk with a drug. Like, I'm not called to these things. And we over-romanticize this idea of this calling. And I heard one pastor or preacher said, listen, why are we waiting on a call? We've got a command. Like, it's really, really clear. It's not like, well, maybe you will be. He says, no, 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 you will. Like, this is what the church will do. This is the church's, and if you want to be a part of the church, this is what the church will do. Not everybody's going to go and live in a, a third world country and share the, the gospel. Not everybody's going to open up their home to a foster kid, but everybody will be involved. Everybody will be doing something or you won't be a part of my people. Jesus makes this really frighteningly clear in Matthew 25. He says, listen, there's going to come, the judgment day is going to come. There's going to be all kinds of people who think they're a part of the family of God. And Jesus is going to look at them and go, I never knew you. I didn't know you. They're going, whoa, 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 whoa. We went to church, and we did this, and we gave this amount of money. He just goes, yeah, yeah that's great. I, didn't, I don't know you. And what do you mean you don't know me? Mommy, Jesus, I did this, and I did that. And Jesus goes, yeah, but, you know, when I was in prison, you didn't come see me. When I, you saw me, I was thirsty. I didn't have any resources of my own. You didn't, do any, you didn't give me a drink. When I didn't have any clothes, you didn't give me your shirt. Then they're going, well, Jesus, when did, we, like, when did we see you in prison or without clothes or thirsty and we didn't give you that? Like, if we'd have seen you, Jesus, we would have totally given you that. Jesus goes, yeah, when, when you saw the least of these, when you saw them struggling, you didn't, you didn't to me. He's going to look over at a whole bunch of, a whole line of people, and he's going to go, hey, you didn't have the most money. You didn't have the prettiest life, but you served. You gave yourself to me. You gave yourself to my people. Come in. And, and listen, it'll be clear. This is not laying before you this work salvation. If you do these things and live this way, then Jesus will accept you in. Really clear that we don't earn our salvation. James says, it's not about like this, you know, earning your way in, but he's saying if you truly get the gospel, if you truly get salvation, then you'll live your life in such a way that is reflecting of where God is. And listen, we're all not going to be perfect. We all get met with this at different times. Esther and Mordecai, listen, they're probably a couple generations removed. It's not all their fault, I would say. Their parents and their grandparents didn't do a good job at discipling them. They didn't necessarily know they were supposed to be living life this way, and, and they, it was kind of, you know, handed off to them poorly. So it's not about what you've, you know, haven't done. It's about what you're going to do from here on out. When, when you're faced with this reality that, oh, yeah, I am like them because I've been living life for my own pursuit of stuff. I've been living life. Like, I know that God wants, you know, he wants to bless people who do stuff like that. But I need to just, you know, get my stuff in order over here first and then maybe 
right? And that's very much the same decision that Mordecai and Esther and their family made whenever they went to Susa instead of back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. They have to build stuff. They're going to have to live together. They're going to have to fight for each other. They can go to Susa and get their own apartment and live a really comfortable life. So listen, we make that decision. We go, well, I mean, I'll be a Christian, but I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to join the varsity team and start doing all that crazy stuff. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's not the varsity team. It's just my team. It's what we do. We're the people of God. We live this way. And when you live this way, I'm going to bless you. I won't bail on you. And it's not about having your best life later, right? You're, or, or it's, actually, it is. It's not about having your best life now and having all, like, that's what a lot of us think about Christianity. We think, well, okay, we pray this prayer, we do this thing, we go to church, you know, a minimum two or three times a month, and we, we give a little bit of money, and then God will keep most of the bad stuff from happening in our lives, right? Like, that's the common understanding of what Christianity is, especially in our area here. And Jesus makes it really clear. No, no, like, no, no. I've come to give you life, but if you want to find it, Jesus says, you've got to lay down your own. Lay down your own. And when you do, you'll find it. Life to the fullest. Life with deep, unbreakable joy. But if you want to save your life, you got your own agenda, you got your own list of things that you want to do, and you're just trying to, you know, maybe grab onto this religion thing so that you, you got a life insurance policy, but you're going to keep, you know, doing all of your stuff. Jesus says, you want to save your life? You, you keep looking back here and worried about all this stuff? He says, you'll lose it. You'll lose it. You'll get, to, listen, here's the reality that we share with Mordecai and Esther and the Jews is, listen, we are all in the same boat as them. Our date has been set. Our death is coming. The Bible is really, really clear. The wages of sin is death. And, and listen, that's not just for the really, really bad people. It's all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. It was appointed a man once, like, it was appointed, we're going to die. Like, that's all of us. We've all received that decree. We can live as though it's not a reality, but 10 out of 10, right? 100% of people. We will die. And then we're going to be judged. Well, why are we going to die? I wasn't really, you know, I'll be all right. I'm better than most people. It's not really what it's about. Right? The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all without hope. There's no one who's seeking God, no one who's good and pretty good, and maybe you'll get to. No, no, no. We are all hopeless. We are all at the same place as these people where we have to realize, oh no, I've made a mess of my life. I've made a mess of this. I thought I knew what was best. I thought I knew how to live. And now I have to realize that, man, reality is hard, and I, I have no hope. For some of us, this happens when we get a diagnosis. For some of us, this happens when we have a kid and we're like, oh, geez, I'm responsible for somebody else's life now. Better get back in church, right? Some of y'all, that's your story, and that's totally okay, right? Jesus, it doesn't, again, it doesn't matter where you've been. It's about where, where you are right now and what, what are you doing with the life Jesus is calling us to, right? Some of us, it takes, that, it takes losing a family member. It takes getting older where we're sobered into reality of, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But the good news is that he's not sitting up there t- saying, I told you so. He's not sitting up there totally indifferent to, to your suffering and waiting to just wait, see you look up so he can grin and go, see, I told you, you're a fool. No, no, no. He entered in. And like Esther, for such a time as this, maybe she's been placed on the throne. Galatians says this. It's, Galatians says that um, when the fullness of time had come, you get that, man, it's Galatians 4, I think. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God doesn't just stay on his throne and and let us deal with what happens. He's not just having a drink while we're in chaos. He sees his world in panic. He sees his world in pain. And he so so loved the world. We know that verse so well that he sent his only son. Like, this is what happened in the fullness of time it came. Like, for such a time as this, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that that we might receive adoption as sons. So the good news is, no matter where you're at, no matter how you've spent your life up to this point, no matter what you've thought Christianity meant or being a good person meant, the bad news is, it's just not true. Like, no, no one is perfect. No one is righteous. No one can stand before God. So we all need to join Mordecai and Esther in our weeping, in our, 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 our mourning of our state that we have caused this, that we are sinful, that we indeed deserve death. And yet, God is still the same God here, and he's not forgot his people. And he stepped into our our mess to bring salvation. He lived the life that you and I couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved to die so that he could offer us only the victory that he deserved to have. So no matter where you are, like what that looks like for you today, you can be honest about it. Confess to God that you're a sinner, that you've made a mess of your own life, and cry out to him as Savior. And listen, you're going to need to count the cost like Esther did. She had to go, okay, if I do this, I could die. And for you, some of you, that's the reality. Like, well, if I really follow Jesus, then I'm going to have to give up this, and I probably won't be able to do this. And, And yeah, you should count that cost. You should count that cost. But you should count the cost the other way, too, because if you don't, you're going to be like the rich fool who got to the end of his life and realized, man, I can't take any of it with me. Like, I've wasted all that. I threw it all away. So count the cost and then surrender your life to the good king. Surrender your life to Jesus, the one who never loses his throne, the one who never loses his temper, the one who never makes a mess of things. In fact, he has come to make our mess beautiful, redemptive. Let's pray. Jesus, would would that truth just radiate throughout our hearts, throughout this room today, and may it fall into the the circumstances and situations of everybody in this room. May you use the gospel truth, the, the incredible news of Jesus giving his life for the sake of sinners such as us. May you use that to just wreck us this morning, to sober us from this reality that, man, we got time. We, got, we can do our own thing. We don't have to be that serious about God. Would you use that gospel truth to just wreck us this morning? And would you extend your grace so that while we're here and we're wrecked, you lift our heads and call us unto salvation? Would you do that this morning? Would you restore the joy of your salvation? Would you call us once again into lifestyles that are giving of ourselves to lay down our own life, to pick up your cross and to follow you into redemption. Would you give us that grace this morning? Across this room, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.